Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Ranking Presence Podcast. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. We are screaming into the 20th century, finally. Yeah, it is crazy that we're finally in the 20th century, because we've gone through every president of the 19th century, and, like... I, there was only two of them in the 18th century, Washington and Adams, and I think. Yeah, I yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but we're entering the modern era, and we're talking about a guy that, once again, is kind of a little bit of an unknown. On the periphery. On yeah. the periphery, yeah. William McKinley. But I think this guy is really interesting. Oh, he absolutely is. Very, very interesting. And just for those who don't know, he's the one right before Teddy Roosevelt. So. Yep, kind of like. Kind of a little bit of uh, James Buchanan syndrome, or like, who is this guy before like this beloved president? Yeah, and and I think in McKinley, like Buchanan's case, he was a terrible president. Yeah, he was a terrible president. Like, who really cares? I mean, we care to learn from his mistakes. Yeah, but yeah. it's fine with his presidency being mostly forgotten. But but McKinley, uh, McKinley did some things that uh, should be remembered. Yes. for better and for worse. Yes, yes. So let's talk about who this guy was. So. Unlike some of the more well-known presidents, McKinley's early life was fairly normal and stable. Oh, like, uh, well, wasn't Harrison before him? His yeah, kid, he yeah. had a stable. What well, is this with like normal child? Yeah, what's with this stability? I want murder. <laughs> I want tragedy. I want wrestling matches. Like, I every every president needs to have a tragic anime backstory. Exactly. <laughs> they need an Andrew Jackson villain backstory or Abraham Lincoln hero backstory. Yep. yep. So he was born on January 29th, 1843, in Niles, Ohio, until they moved to Poland, Ohio, when he was 10. He was the seventh of eight children for the elder William and his mother, Nancy Allison McKinley. The Miller Center described his family as loving and his childhood as fun-filled, but also carefully guided by his parents. Okay. So as a young boy, like most kids his age, he fished, hunted, ice skated, horseback rode, and swimmed. He A little bit of everything. Yeah. He also worked as father's small iron foundry, which taught him a strong work ethic. His mother also instilled in him prayer, courtesy, and honesty. This is, I want to say, this is the first time we've seen a president with this sort of almost classic American upbringing that's immortalized so many pieces of art culture, you know? Yeah, it's like, obviously, like, the, the modern American suburbs didn't exist yet, but, yeah. like, he, he kind of lived the equivalent of that back in, like, the turn of the century. Yeah, it's like, oh, you're playing some games, but they're teaching you good, honest, hard work and American values. Yeah, like, the ideal, the ideal American life. Yeah. His family had English and Scots-Irish roots, and the family was Methodist, and as a result, were fairly abolitionists, and the Miller Center used the word wiggish to describe them, which I just love it. <laughs> oh, wiggish. Wiggish. <laughs> For describing, obviously, the Whig Party, but that's just, I love that. Well, when we restart the Whig Party, we'll have to have hashtag wiggish. Yeah. We're about, we're about due for a major third party. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm getting real tired of this. We're we going to rock the boat. We're going to bring the Whigs back, make the Whigs great again. <laughs> So, as a young boy, he studied at a school run by a Methodist seminary in Poland, Ohio. And after graduating, he attended Allegheny College in Meadsville, Pennsylvania. However, he ended up leaving the college after only one year in 1860 due to illness and depression. Although he did bounce back, his family ran into financial problems, he was unable to return to school. So he got a job as a teacher. Now, when the Civil War started, William joined the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry. He would show himself as a brave soldier during the Battle of Antinium and would rise to the ranks of second lieutenant, where he served under one Colonel Rutherford B. Hayes. Oh, connective tissue, always fun. Yep. It's so interesting. Whenever we look at presidents, they usually knew one of the previous presidents. At somehow. least one. Yeah. 
Like, they either met them, like, in the military, or they were sort of introduced or something. Mm -hmm. So he considered Hayes a mentor and would stay in contact with him the rest of his life. And after four years in the military, he would gain the title of brevet major. Following this, McKinley returned to Ohio to do law. <laughs> I like, was waiting for it. Like, come on, give yeah, me like, the law. Like, yeah, he'd study the law at the Albany Law School and pass the bar in 1867. Like, there's only been, what, like two presidents so far that haven't been lawyers? Like, two or three? Yeah, Something yeah. like that? Like, Washington and Grant and maybe Taylor? Yeah, Taylor was a yeah, general, yeah. but so. If you're not in law, you're in the military. Yep. He would then get involved in politics by unsuccessfully running for county prosecutor in 1869. Then he met Ida Saxon, who would be, he would begin courting and married her two, day, two years later. Two days later. <laughs> two days later. Two years later. He was 27 and she was 23 at a time. So far less of an age gap than old Grover. Oh, yeah. Know, I'd say... Marrying some of his daughter's age. I'd say that's modern approved. Mm-hmm. Larry, he ran for Congress in 1876 as a Republican and won, where he served until 1891. Okay. Now, in this role, he served on the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee and drafted the famous McKinley Tariff of 1890, which we talked about last episode. Unfortunately for him, voters didn't like this tariff, which rose prices a lot, and he was voted out with many of his fellow Republicans. And fun fact, this was largely due to gerrymandering. Ooh. So, for those who don't know, what gerrymandering is, is a many states will get together and they'll decide where the district lines are. And a lot of times what they'll try to do is they'll draw these weirdly weird lines so that, like, all of their voters will be concentrated in more districts. Yep, and they'll and they'll separate all of, like, the opposing party's voters into, like, tiny little pies to where, like, they're the minority in every district. Yes, yes. And since they had so McKinley lost, but he wasn't discouraged, though. Instead, he went back home to Ohio and ran for governor and won. Now, as governor, he didn't have a lot of power. He would recommend legislation. He could recommend legislation, but he couldn't veto anything. However, he tried to make his mark by handling labor issues. Ooh, a sign of things to come. Yep. So he set up an arbitration system to help sell disputes between labor groups and businesses. He actually convinced Ohio Republicans to support it, even though a lot of them didn't even want to acknowledge labor unions had any rights at all. That, okay, that's positive. That's, yep. like, really positive. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, McKinley often didn't give in to all the labor demands, and at one point called in the National Guard in 1894 to deal with the strike from United Mine Workers. So, yeah. but, eh. He was able to win re-election in 1894 in part due to his financial fortune suffering during the Depression of 1893. He had co-signed loans for a friend who went bankrupt. So, sort of the idea, I'm in this with you, you know, yeah. so that helped him. Now, with his experience under his belt, he became known as the Idol of Ohio. Oh, fancy. Yeah. So, let's talk a little bit about his personality and beliefs. The presidential hand describes McKinley as open, friendly, even-tempered, cheerful, optimistic, and well-liked. The historian Margaret Leach said, He was more popular, he was more beloved than anyone. Even his political opponents were attracted by the peculiar sweetness of his personality. <laughs> oh, he was a sweet man. Yeah. Okay. And his courtesy and fairness pleased both Democrats and Republicans, according to biographer Charles S. Olcott. Olcott. Now, he was known to have a dry wit, and the way the, the President Ham described it, he loved clean jokes but hated dirty off-color ones. Oh, yes, yes. Now, yeah. for this reason, William is known as a type 2. And I agree with that. For example, that arbitration thing is very sort of type two. Once yep. they want everyone to get along and help everyone, mm -hmm. mediator. And if you don't believe me now, if you're a bit one of those big uh, enneagram buffs, just wait till we get to his end of his life, and you'll see, you'll agree with me. 
Now, we have sort of gotten used to non-religious presence the past few times, but McKinley was very devout. Ooh, welcome to the 20th century! Yeah, we've sort of, it's, it's, we talked about this last episode, but there's sort of this idea that all the presidents were religious, and a lot of them really weren't. But now we're getting to the point where, like, no, religion is going to become much more important in the presidential life. It's just it's just shocking that it wasn't always important in the presidential yes. life. Because in the 1800s, overall, it was not. Yeah, overall, they were like, eh, I guess I'm religious, but not really. Now, that, that's not to say that religion didn't have a huge impact on America. It's just that it was just more, like, special, like, interests. Yeah. Like, exerting force on the country as opposed to, like, Christian presidents, like, reigning from above. Exactly. So, he regularly attended church, prayed, and read his Bible daily. And he had a religious conversion experience when he was at a camp meeting when he was 10. And I feel like wow. <laughs> camp meetings were huge back yep. in the 1800s. Yep, they were the thing. Yep. He would support missionary work and believe strongly in God directing history. And he'd regularly pray before his policy decisions. During his inauguration, he said, Our faith teaches that there is no safer reliance than upon the God of our fathers. And here, here we get here we get to something a little bit interesting and potentially disturbing. Okay. okay. Who ha- and this is the continuation quote: "Who has so singly favored the American people in every national trial, and who will not forsake us so long as we obey his commandments and walk humbly in his footsteps." Ooh, man! There's you got American exceptionalism. You yeah. got you got joining of church and state. Yeah, well, you got a lot. You got a lot. We're seeing seeds of some of the stuff we're going to see. M- Continuing in the 20th century. Oh, and yeah. Even today. Mm-hmm. So, as we saw from that quote, McKinley tended to conflate his religion and his patriotism. And his war against Spain and the Philippines, which Kurt's talk more about later, was influenced by his theology. Ooh. He explained his reasoning, actually, as president during a general missionary committee of the Methodist Episcopal Church, who had met at the White House in 1899. Here's what he said. I walked the floor of the White House night after night until midnight, and I am not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, that I went down on my knees and prayed to Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And one night it came to me this way. I don't know how it was, but it came. Though, number one, that we could not give them back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonest, referring to Cuba. Yeah. And there was nothing left for us to do but to take them all and educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them. Ooh. And by God's grace to do the very best we could by them, as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. And then I went to bed and went to sleep and slept soundly. We'll get back to the uh, the, the Filipino peoples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a quick note about his views on racism. So, before I give it over to Curtis. Mm-hmm. Although he had spoken out against Lachin's governor and did receive the black vote, he overall saw reconciliation with the South as more important. He did give black postmasters a few posts, but overall it was kind of, eh. You know, mm-hmm. So... Not and, a whole lot to say and, about that. And we'll that. talk about his policy decisions in regards mm. to race as well. So we talked a little bit, and we'll come back to, I'll, I'll talk about his assassination, spoiler alert, later. But Curtis, tell us about his policy. What was he like as president? All right, so before we, before we start in on policy, let, let's do a little state of the nation. This is where yes. we take a look at what was going on outside of the presidency that had something to do with America. Mm -hmm. Or even the world. Yeah. So let's talk about the Paris Exposition of 1900. Ooh, big thing. A World's Fair held in France. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a massive event. Mm -hmm. It introduced a lot of new technologies that had previously not been seen by the public. It introduced the Ferris wheel, Mm -hmm. diesel engines, talking films. Like, no one had ever seen a film with sound until the fair. No. And, of course, this was still, like, 20 years out from being, like, commonly used technology, but it was debuted at 
the Paris Exposition. Um, escalators and the first magnetic audio recorder to the world. That's so interesting when you think about it, because that was only 120 years ago. Yeah. When you really mm-hmm. think about that. Think about how far we've advanced from them. Just insane. Mm-hmm. And then, in terms of scale, it was 543 acres of fairgrounds. Now, to put that into something that me and you can kind of, like, understand, the Kentucky State Fair is 300 acres Okay, so of pretty big. So, this was almost double, mm-hmm. like, your standard, like, state fair. And back then, with, like, their limited technology and their limited ability to assemble, like, that's crazy. Yeah, that is. Now, 47 countries from around the world designed and constructed their unique national pavilions. The British modeled theirs after an aristocratic castle. Of course they did. (laughs) And uh, the German pavilion resembled a beer hall. (laughs) Those Germans. I like that. And uh, another fun fact was the first worldwide Olympic Games outside of Greece were held here. Ooh, that is interesting. So that that's kind of what was going on, like something a little bit positive, more positive and uplifting. Sometimes we talk about depressing things. Yeah, or like you know, well, there here's a murderer, <laughs> <laughs> or like, well, what were the Mormons up to at this time? Yeah, being wild, probably <laughs> yeah, wilding out. All right, so let's start by talking about McKinley's domestic policy. Okay. Now he was inaugurated on March fourth, eighteen ninety seven, and declared, quote unquote. The country is suffering from industrial disturbances. <laughs> industrial disturbances. <laughs> from which speedy relief must be had. Our financial system needs some revision. Okay. Our money is all good now, but its value must not further be threatened. Okay. That now, mean many things. Let, let's transition right into that money talk. Through most of 1897, the McKinley administration pursued an international agreement to include silver along with gold as an acceptable acceptable backing for the major European currencies. Mm. So it was kind of a dual, like, gold-silver standard. Mm, We're making the... Because we saw last few episodes the silver versus gold debate, Mm -hmm. and now we're trying to make it a little bigger. Now, when negotiations with these nations over bimetallism, that's a fun word, (laughs) failed in late 1897, McKinley began advocating a strictly gold-based currency. Mm. So he did fall on one of the sides. Ah, the gold. In 1900, he signed the Gold Standard Act, which placed U.S. money on the gold standard. All currency was fully backed by gold with a fixed price at $20.67 an ounce. It's funny because the gold standard argument, there's still a subsection of America that really loves talking oh, about yeah. us back in the gold standard. Yep, yep. So that old argument, it's, it's still around here. Still exists, still exists. So, jumping to the uh, next economic issue at the time... Tariffs. Mm. McKinley called a special session of Congress to revise the tariff upward. And he called this special session actually only a week after he was inaugurated. So this was one of the first issues that he wanted to tackle. Okay. Now, he boosted the tariffs up to 49% on some goods. Mm, and, getting it higher. And, provided the big, and this provided the biggest source of funding for the government. This was how the government made it, most of its money. I can just see, like, John Tyler and all those presidents just rolling over in their graves. <laughs> How dare you? Andrew Jackson rises. <laughs> <laughs> when the moon is full. Yep. McKinley, however, did not remain a protectionist, nor a supporter of terrorists for the duration of his presidency. Ooh. In 1901, only a day before his untimely demise, Ooh. he announced his support for reciprocal trade treaties, a considerable shift in his thinking about trade policy. Mm, okay, so he changed his mind, or yeah. was moved by political forces. Probably a little bit of both. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about race relations. Mm. So McKinley's initiatives in race relations were... Largely cosmetic. 
Yeah. So that's how the Miller Center put it, and I was like, yep, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. He appointed 30 African Americans to, quote-unquote, points of consequence, mm. which were principally, principally in diplomatic and record offices. Okay. But that number fell far short of what black Republicans had wanted, yeah. obviously. Like, you, you appointed 30 dudes. Yeah. That's it. McKinley, as you mentioned, um, further denounced lynching in his 1897 uh, inaugural address, but failed to condemn the practice formally. Mm. It's like, come on, man! It's a bit, that's a, we got ourselves a moderate here. Yep, yep, yep. He also refrained from taking action to uh, discourage the general um, anti-black violence in the South mm. that had reached near epidemic portions in the last four years of the century. Yep. And uh, during one, one other slightly positive but mostly cosmetic thing was during the Spanish-American War, he countermanded, which I didn't know what it meant, but it means revoke, orders preventing the recruitment and service of black soldiers okay so i mean that's positive but still at the same time like he wasn't necessarily an advocate no not at all moving on to his belief about trusts and this this is kind of a this is kind of a tasty appetizer to the big teddy yeah big teddy and the big battle the trust busting so in terms of monopolies mckinley believed there to be both quote-unquote, good and bad trusts. Oh, of course. (laughs) Some moderate BS right there. Yep. He even thought that consolidation of industry was necessary for international competition. He's like, well, we got to keep up with the the companies overseas, so we got to have powerful companies. (laughs) Yeah, that's a slippery slope. Mm. Um, He did support limiting trusts who possessed a monopoly of interstate commerce, though. Mm -hmm. And he did endorse the Sherman Antitrust Act, but he didn't really add any additional provisions to it or really enforce it. So, uh, of course. It, it was basically just like a gun that was lying on the table that like he kind of came over to, kind of polished it, didn't use it. Yeah. And he was, But then Teddy was like, all right, time to open her up. Mm, yeah. All right. Um, so moving from that to labor, McKinley's support, McKinley did provide support for the Dingley Tariff. Okay. And appointed various labor leaders to government positions. Okay. McKinley further indicated his support of labor by holding cordial meetings with Samuel Gompers. Okay. A big, big labor name, maybe the biggest labor name in American history. Yeah. President of the American Federation of Labor. Now, he did dispense federal troops one time during a strike in Idaho, mm. but due to patriotism over the Spanish-American War, um, he this did not cost him re-election. Oh. Oh, so okay. a lot of like the common like workers still were like no like we gotta we gotta make Spain pay and McKinley's gonna be the guy to do it yeah so they didn't care mm, that's interesting um, another another uh, note that uh, calls back to a previous president civil service mm-hmm. McKinley's Republican Party was not a fan of the Cleveland merit system for hiring federal employees because like if we're calling if we're if we're going all the way back to Grover Cleveland like. Republicans were known to be machine politicians. Yes. And, like, this was only a few years later, so they were still very much into political machines and, like, ballot stuffing and, like, all this shady nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, McKinley was eventually pressured by Republicans to remove 4,000 government positions from the merit list. Oh, wow, that's a lot. Due to Democrats being entrenched in these positions. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get them out. It's like, they're too good at their job. Like, we can't give them this based off of merit. They'll never leave. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was a little shady. Um, but, uh, let, let's get into some saucier topics in foreign policy. Ah, because now, now we got a war in our hands. Not a very well-known war, yep, but yep. a very important The one. first, the first war since the Civil War. Yep. 
at least the first major war. Yeah. Like we've we've kind of like dipped our toes into like foreign conflicts occasionally, but this is like an American actual war. Yeah, we declared war on somebody. Okay, so McKinley entered an America that had secured its land from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Yeah. The continent. <laughs> the continental United States was a thing. Um, but many Americans wondered how the country could continue to expand. Ah, uh, yes. Because you reach one shore, it's like, where are the other lands to conquer? Mm-hmm. There, but there were also, quote-unquote, anti-imperialists mm-hmm. who opposed colonization and annexing other countries due mainly to economic and surprisingly racist ideas yeah. because they didn't want non-white people coming to America. Yeah. And just, yeah, just for a little context, this was sort of a new era for imperialism in Europe. Because a lot of those old colonies, like in Latin America and the Americas, had failed. Yeah. But now there was, like, the scramble for Africa, where they carved up Africa. Yep. And, you know, scramble for those those places in the Medi- not Mediterranean, the Pacific. So yep. we got some imperialism going. Ah, uh, yes. Neo-imperialism. Yep. It's not officially called that, but you slap a neo on everything when it comes back and yeah, you're, you're exactly. good. Yeah. So let's talk about the Spanish-American War. Let's let's bust this wide open. Um, I didn't know a lot about it, aside from the ship sinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's there's some interesting things that went down, and like some interesting implications on presidential power. So Cuba was a Spanish colony, and they were not happy about being a Spanish colony because no. being colonized is not fun. No. In November of 1897, the U.S. Maine a ship exploded, killing 266 crew members. This was after a lot of tent. Tense exchanges between um, McKinley and, like, the Prime Minister of Spain. And, yeah. Um, the Prime Minister, even at one point, uh, referred to uh, McKinley as someone who was only interested in, in uh, appe- appearing powerful and appearing, uh, like, crowd-pleasing. He's uh, like, this guy is a crowd-pleaser. Uh, um, so there was a little bit of tension before that, but uh, then the U.S. man exploded and uh, Americans were ticked. And they... D- and the U.S. ended up declaring war because of that, mostly. Um, and Congress added the Teller Amendment to its declaration of war. Ooh, this is something this? that will be more and more important as we get to modern times. This committed the United States to the independence of Cuba once the war had ended, disclaiming, quote-unquote, any disposition or intention to exercise sovereignty, jurisdiction, or control over said island except for the pacification thereof. Ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's very interesting. Yep. After the declarations of war, events moved quickly and decisively in America's favor. This wasn't so much a war as it was a complete beatdown. Yeah. So on May 1st, Commodore George Dewey destroyed Spain's 10-ship Pacific Fleet in Manila Bay without losing a single man. Oh, wow. Uh, McKinley pushed through a joint resolution of Congress during this time, annexing the Hawaiian Islands. Oh, yeah. you got to add some more land yep. to it while you're at it. In Cuba... U.S. forces, including the Rough Riders, <laughs> led by Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, Rough captured... Riders are the best name ever. I know, right? Captured Santiago. The U.S. Navy destroyed Spain's Atlantic fleet in the waters between Cuba and Jamaica, and U.S. troops captured Puerto Rico. Spain sued for peace, which is an interesting way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, peace, please. Peace, yo. And a ceasefire was declared on August 12th. Mm. One day later... Commodore Dewey's forces completed their campaign against the Spanish in the Philippines by taking Manila. During the fighting, McKinley operated a war room from the White House, complete with detailed maps and a battery of telephones through which he kept in constant contact with his generals in the field. 
he was an interesting as he well. was an active war president yeah. which is interesting that is interesting because you know during abraham lincoln's presidency i mean there's nothing no nothing like that so no. it's honestly him hurrying after the fact and him trying to direct but yeah. now we got sort of modern telecommunications equipment mm-hmm. and this is also the first time since the war of 1812 when america has fought a european power yeah yeah so this is really expressing america's newfound power too mm-hmm. we're flexing on people now mm-hmm. The war had lasted just over three months, and the Americans killed in action numbered less than 400. Okay, so not very many. Although many more had died from malaria, yellow fever, and other diseases. Obviously, as you do, it's still the early uh, 1900s. Yeah. The Paris Peace Treaty was signed on December 10th, 1898. Under this treaty, the United States obtained Puerto Rico, Guam, and for $20 million, the Philippine Islands. Mm. So, I mean, if you want to look at it from a strictly, like... Like, um, a pro-America position. Yeah. Like, we made off like bandits from this. Yeah. And we, we, we're now got imperial possession. Yep. In demonstrating his political influence on the outcome of these matters, McKinley became the undisputed leader of the Republican Party. Yeah, I could imagine. Like, winning yep. a war that decisively, that quickly, yep. that's, that's going to make you really popular. Yep. Furthermore, his actions represented a real expansion of presidential power at the turn of the century. Because, mm-hmm. like... We didn't know what presidential power, like, at least that modern version of presidential power would look like during wartime. No, no. We didn't, we just didn't know. And know? this this set the president precedent for decades later when we go to the world wars. Yeah, where the presidents really become sort of almost like a general. Yeah, uh-huh. Directing it and keeping an eye on it. Absolutely. So we, uh, the American government took possession of the Philippines and there was swiftly a Filipino revolt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is uh, this is some uh, some stuff. Yeah. Just to put it lightly. This was a grassroots insurgency that broke out in the Philippines, led by Filipino nationalist Emilio Aguinaldo, right after the Spanish-American War ended. Okay. McKinley responded. McKinley responded by sending thousands of American Marines and sailor- sailors to the islands. This action engaged the nationalists in a bloody war. War is a interesting term. That left the United States open to atrocity charges similar to those lodged against Spain in its dealings with Cuba and the reconcentration camps that they had in Cuba. Like, if we're being compared to that, that is some messed up stuff. That is very messed up. The war lasted until 1902, and before it was over, it claimed the lives of more than 5,000 Americans and some 200,000 Filipinos. This was a massacre. Yeah, this is a a much forgotten war, and it shouldn't be forgotten. No, yeah. We're getting into sort of... That word concentration camp is interesting because now we are decisively moving to the 20th century and we're going to start seeing stuff get a whole lot worse. In mm-hmm. The bloodiest century so far. Yeah. And uh, it's it's definitely... Um... Okay, Brad, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Pausing the foreign policy real quick. Yeah. How much blame do you put on McKinley specifically for something like the Filipino revolt? Because, mm. like, how much should this, like, act of atrocity on behalf of America, like, reflect back on our president? I think he at least gets 50% of the blame because he's the one that told them to control the yeah. Philippines. Mm-hmm. And then he had to have been game reports. Yeah, I mean, happening. I mean, he's at least complicit in it at the yeah, very least. At the very least complicit. So, at least half, I'd say. So, deducting points accordingly. Yeah. Um, and then let's talk about China. We haven't talked about them since uh, we refused to let their people into our borders. Yep. China. China. China began to emerge as a global economic power during this time. 
Fearful that the Europeans and Japanese might close Chinese ports to U.S. commerce, President McKinley authorized Secretary of State John Hay to issue an open-door note on China. This circular... This... Uh, let's see. Um, this circular strongly expressed the American desire to place all commercial nations on an equal footing in China, okay. unencumbered by discriminatory tariffs or other restrictions. It also declared U.S. support for non-colonized and independent China. Okay. Yeah, because China wasn't officially colonized, but there were sort of zones of influence where Europeans had sort of expressed their power. Mm -hmm. The Open Door Policy stands as one of the most important policy statements ever issued by the U.S. State Department. Mm. And uh, let's let's see when that's tested. What what goes on when it's tested? The Boxer Rebellion happens in Uh, June 1900. I was about to say. And this was when a group of Chinese nationalists who objected to foreign intrusions into their country massacred numerous Western missionaries and Chinese converts to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Popularly known as the Boxers, this group also laid siege to the foreign community of diplomats in Peking. Mm-hmm. McKinley dispatched 2,500 U.S. troops without seeking congressional approval. Oh, yes. And several gunboats to assist a combined... Ec- expeditionary force of British, German, Russian, and Japanese troops in the liberation of the foreign delegations. Mm -hmm. Secretary of State John Hay issued a second open-door note in the midst of the Boxer Rebellion that warned America's expeditionary partners that the United States supported intervention only to rescue the diplomats, not to bring China under European and Japanese control. Mm. Straddling that line. Yeah. By August, the Allied force had successfully put down the Boxer Rebellion. China was forced to pay an indemnity in excess of $300 million, yep. $25 million of which went to the United States. It's interesting just how quickly we've turned a corner and now everything is starting to sound very modern. Yeah, I know, right? Like, yeah, it's like, woo! We were talking beforehand, like, McKinley feels like a hard shift into, like, this is a modern president. Yeah. It's like we're talking about someone, like, from 20 years ago. I know. It's crazy. So yeah, that that was the policy of William McKinley. Like, he was an effective politician and legislator. Yeah, I can tell. Like, there is some messed up stuff that he did, but like, he was good at his job from by all accounts. Like, he was mm-hmm. he was a centrist to to like his dying breath. He, uh, which is of course both good and bad depending yes. on how centrist you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was really good at uh, eliciting cooperation. Yes, he really was. So that was some very interesting and wild stuff. Let's talk about his assassination real quick. Yeah, because like I think he... I think the few people who do know about McKinley pretty much only know about his assassination. Yes, and his assassination is very interesting. It reveals a lot both about himself and what was going on at the time. So let's talk about his assassin first. He was a guy named Leon F. Uh, I'm just going to call him Leon because I can't pronounce his last name. It's like Kozolgos. So, he was a 20-year-old Detroit man with Polish roots. Leon had been a worker at the Cleveland Rolling Mill Company. But when the factory tried to cut wages, the workers went on strike. So, Leon first got interested in moderate socialist groups as a result of this. Okay. But later he became more radical, eventually joining anarchist groups. So as as a young man, he was a bit of a recluse and fought with his parents over their strong Catholic beliefs. He would also meet up with a famed anarchist, Emma Goldman, and others like Abraham Isaac, the publisher of the Free Society. Mm. Now, during this time, anarchists were also getting big in Europe and agitating. 
and he became inspired by the assassination of King Umberto I of Italy by an anarchist, and he got the idea to try the same thing in America. He believed the reason for the injustice in America was due to the wealth inequality propped up by the government. Now, as for the other anarchists around him, his strange behavior, evasiveness, and questions concerned them, who later th actually thought he was a government spy. Oh, wow. And they wrote in their paper, his demeanor is of the usual sort, pretending to be greatly interested in the cause, asking for names or soliciting aids for acts of contemplating violence. If this same individual makes his appearance elsewhere, the comrades are warmed in advance, and they can act accordingly. Now, the New York police warned McKinley that they had caught word of assassination attempt, but McKinley didn't listen to it. Ah, uh, there was a tip-off. Yep. So on August 31st, 1901, Leon went to Buffalo, New York, where McKinley was speaking at the Pan American Exposition. On September 6th, he entered the exposition while wearing a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson safe automatic revolver that he had bought in New York. Now, McKinley was shaking hands with people inside the Temple of Music. And went right up to McKinley, and McKinley extended his hand to Leon. Leon slapped his hand aside and shot him twice in the abdomen at point-blank range. Wow. Now, one bullet just got caught in McKinley's jacket, and the other got him in the stomach. An angry crowd immediately began beating up Leon, but McKinley called them off, saying, Go easy on him, boys. Wow. That is that is wild. Yeah, and that's... I was going to say, that's definitely like a type 2 thing. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, literally, like, bleeding on the floor. Like, no, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. Now, Leon was dragged off to jail, and as he laid there, he told... McKinley told his secretary, uh, My wife, be careful how you tell her. Oh, be careful. Wow. So... Now, first of all, like McKinley, we recover, because the wound wasn't actually lethal. Yeah, it, d it didn't sound very lethal. No. Now, at the hospital, there were only nurses and interns. No doctors were available at first. And here's a crazy story. They went around asking the doctors in the city to help. And when they asked the best surgeon in the city to help the president, and they hadn't told him who he was going to help. They yeah. were just like, we need you to help someone save someone's life. He said no, as he was in the middle of a neck operation. And in his words, the doctor said, I couldn't leave even if it was the President of the United States. Oh, man. And then they told him, well, it was the President. He's like, well, I'm staying by my word. <laughs> wow. So eventually the doctor was arrived, and when McKinley was operating on, he actually would say during it about his assassin, he said, oh, he didn't know, poor fellow, what he was doing. He couldn't have known. Wow, that is, that is some straight up, like, almost quoting scripture right there. Yep, yep. Now, the doctor was unable to find the bullet. It was likely lodged in his back. And so they sealed him up, and they got him strapped up, and it looked like he would be fine. At the same time, the wound had not been cleaned or traced. No. So gangrene set in, the present state worsened. And I was actually reading, this was the most common cause of death if you got shot in the abdomen. It was what happened yeah. after. Mm -hmm. Now, while he was dying, he would say, it is useless, gentlemen. I think we ought to have prayer. His wife would then say, well, I want to go too. I want to join you. And he responded, we are all going. We are all going. God's will be done, not ours. He put his arm around her, and she would then sing his favorite hymn, Near My God to Thee. And he would die on September 14th. Which is how many days after he got shot? So let me scroll back up. So September 6th. So, 10 okay. so about eight days later. Okay. Now, famously, he did forgive his assassin publicly. Wow. So... So, following the assassination, anti-anarchist laws were passed, and Emma Goldman herself was arrested. But she was released without charge once it was found out this was a lone wolf occasion. Now, Leon said he shot the president because he believed him to be an enemy of the people, the good working people. Leon would be executed by electric chair on October 29th. So, we got wow. 
So Emma Goldman herself would defend Leon, writing, Who can tell how many times this American child has glory in the celebration of the 4th of July, or on Decoration Day when he faithfully honored the nation's dead? Who knows but what he, too, was willing to fight for his country and die for her liberty. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Deifying him almost. Yeah, yeah. So this is, this is a... So she was writing about his assassin, just so that's clear. Yeah, yeah. So that's... That was his death, and that's a very interesting one. It is by far the most cinematic assassination that I've I ever know. heard of. Like, just, can you imagine that on film? Oh, man. Like, just him forgiving his assassin, like, almost right, like right there, instantaneously. He was like, be easy on the boy. Like, yeah, yeah. And he thought of his wife instantly as he's laying there. Oh, like, that is mind-blowing. I didn't know, like, people actually thought that way. Yeah, like, it's... I was thinking about this, and I think McKinley made some bad policy decisions, and I did some immoral things, but it's almost like from this, I'd say McKinley was a good person. A decent a decent man. Yeah, which is interesting, because so many times we look at these presidents who do horrible things policy-wise, it's like, well, they were also kind of awful, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a little different. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen many like this. So ranking McKinley. Oh, this is Ooh. this is going to be a doozy. This is going to be a real doozy. Uh, maybe it'll be slightly easier since we have tiers now. Yeah. So what we've done is obviously we still have them listed, but now we have sort of the S through F tier. So, man. Well, um, I mean, okay. Let's let's go let's go from the bottom. Like, obviously, he's better than F-tier. Yeah, he's better than Fillmore, Pierce, yeah. and Johnson. I think he's above D-tier. Yes. Um, I, I think he is above C-tier. He's definitely more effective than C-tier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I... Th- okay, so here's where... I think, to me, it's between A and B-tier. Yeah. So, there's a variety of arguments you can make. So, technically, people like James Polk are in A-tier. Who are terrible people, but yeah. very effective. Yep. Now, most of our A-tier presidents, let's go through our A-tier presidents. We got at the top, Thomas Jefferson. Which, <laughs> a you know, horrible person. Horrible person. Then right below him, Grant. Yeah. Pretty good. A decent guy. John Quincy Adams. A Amazing decent. person. Yes. Polk, awful person. Harrison. I like Harrison. Yeah, good yeah. He's, he's okay. He's okay. Madison. Eh. <laughs> and Hayes. Eh, he's all right. Yeah, he's, he's okay. Yeah. I th- oh, yeah. A-tier, I think, is good for him. So, his policy is really effective. Yeah, it was. Mm, ooh, this is a tough one. All right, so here, here's where I'm at decision-making process-wise. I think that he's either, he's either, he's either underneath John Quincy Adams, in between Grant and Adams, or above Grant. Mm. I'm gonna say above Grant, just ooh. because of his effectiveness. Yeah, yeah. Like now, that's I love, I love Grant, and I think Grant did some great things. But I think, I think... But Grant didn't win a war. No. In, in his presidency and like... Well, he won... Now Grant won a war when he was general. Yes, of course. Of yeah, course. Yeah. But the the James Madison rule applies where we can't give too much credit to exactly. something they accomplished outside exactly. of it. Exactly. And Grant did have a lot of corruption in his presidency. Mm-hmm. Now, he did a lot of good things with civil rights, or at least tried to. Yeah. And like, uh, I mean, I, I think you could even make the argument that up to this point that... Uh, uh, McKinley was the most effective, like, hands-on war president. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, as we previously stated, like, Lincoln basically had to delegate the right tasks to the right people and then just let them go. Because, yeah. like, there's no communication at that point. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I agree with that. So right below Thomas Jefferson. Wow, that is that is definitely higher than I was expecting McKinley yeah. to go. Yeah, and before before you close that, we got to look at what number that makes him. All right, so I will first write out his name. Hopefully, I spell it correctly. M C K yeah. McKinley. So. That puts him, because Abraham Lincoln's number one, James Monroe's number two, George Washington's number three, Jefferson's number four, number five. Oh, top five? Wow. Top five, man. Teddy better not let us down is all I'm saying. All right, all right, all right. So let's let's talk a little Teddy before we get into the final caucus. Yep, yep, yep. Let's do a little housekeeping. Will you be disappointed if Teddy is below Thomas Jefferson? Yes. I will be incredibly disappointed. Will you be disappointed if we rank him number four? Underneath I, George oh, Washington. Oh. You know, I'm almost hoping that Teddy Roosevelt is at least number two. Yep, that's, that's what I'm hoping that's for. That's what I'm hoping for. Now, I'm not going to jinx it, because we're yep. going to follow the evidence. And we're of gonna, course. We're going to follow where our hearts lead us as oh, we yes, study yes, it. yes, yes. Our hearts and our minds. We follow the data, we follow our hearts and our souls. That's yep. what we do on this yep. podcast. Now, I don't think he'll topple Lincoln, but if he does... Well, okay, in your mind, what would it take for him to topple Lincoln? Like, he would have had to pass, number one, something that is incredibly effective and incredibly great and yep. still in effect today. Yeah. He would just have to express such a penchant for leadership. Yeah, and I think that what... So, obviously, we know a little bit more about him than we do other presidents. We know he was, like, the trust-busting president. Yep. We know he was, like, a, a gregarious dude. Yeah. Um, He'd love to carry a big... Speak softly and carry a big yeah, stick. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think... Honestly, I think it might come down to his policies about race relations and, like, yeah. his beliefs about that. Like, I yeah. don't know anything about what he believed no, about that. No, I don't either. Yeah, I think his race policy and also just how he deals with problems that arise. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does that big stick policy actually apply? Yeah, like his critical, his critical thinking in crisis situations. Yes. So... Moving on to the final caucus. I actually have two final caucuses for us. Sounds spicy. Both of them are incredibly controversial. The second one I'm actually going to have to put some disclaimers on, actually. All right, let's break them open. So the first one. Now, McKinley was deeply influenced by his faith, and in turn his faith influences politics. We saw how he believed it was the right thing to do to fight Spain, take the Philippines. Almost he believed God told him. Yeah, like a little bit of like divine mandate stuff. So, now... Faith and politics have gotten mixed together, and sometimes they're they're often impossible to separate. Like yeah. Obama, very recent president, point out that you can't expect people to leave faith at the door when they come to the polling place. But what role, if any, should personal religious beliefs play in politics on the presidential slash politician level? Oh man, and this okay. question is going to come back, believe it, in a different form. But we well, let's crack yeah, this one open. Yeah, because. I think that the question the question is almost like a like a inspection of how we do this podcast because like yeah. we separate out like okay how are they at policy decisions how are they as a person like yeah. those two conflated together yeah. but like how much should what you identify as right impact your policy decisions yes and I think so. And just to clarify, the question was how much should it, right? Yes, yes. What role? Yeah. Um. I mean, I think that if you're elected, like, mm-hmm. if you're elected, then I think that your religion can impact your 
your policy as much as it, as, as it yeah. as you want it to. Yeah. Because like I think that especially today, like um, the tapes are out there. We know yeah. exactly what Trump believed uh, religiously. We know exactly what Obama believed religiously. Yeah. And the same with like Biden, ev- yeah. every every modern president. Yeah. Um, and now now it's it's also um, arguable that like certain like uh, I guess special interests didn't really like emphasize that if they didn't want to like yeah. not a lot of Christians emphasize the fact that like Trump like didn't know any Bible verses yeah yeah or they <laughs> cheated on his wives yeah. multiple times and all that yeah um, but uh, yeah I think that the information is available the American people like have access to it mm-hmm. like I mean what do you expect the guy to do if he believes a certain way or the yeah. woman or whoever is president yeah I the only thing the caveat I would add to that is that if their religious beliefs entail in some ways dealing a blow to the First Amendment, exactly, and yeah. I think that I think that that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like my, if a president, for example, believes something and wants to put in place something where they believe that Christian, for example, Christianity should have an absolutely dominant position in America. And that means, in some ways, their speech should be favored way above others. So yeah. may, maybe we pass laws saying, like, other religions can't have, you know, churches with their their places of worship within mm-hmm. a certain distance. Or stuff like that. That's when it gets tricky, when it entails mm-hmm. upon people's religious freedom. But I agree with you. You can't expect someone to leave their belief, completely leave what they believe to be true at the door when they come to make policy decisions. Yeah, and, like, I think, I think it comes with anything how, like... Me and you's like personal ideologies will always impact like how we conduct ourselves in a workplace. Yeah, I mean that just that just makes sense. Like I, I like we believe in like treating people fair and like nicely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but uh, yeah, I think that my my only like soft rebuttal because <laughs> mm-hmm. we we haven't gotten into any like fun spicy arguments yet. I'm really hoping we do at yeah. some point. At some point, one of us is just gonna ask a question. It's gonna happen. Yeah, it's gonna happen. Um, but. Uh, how would you regulate that in terms of like in terms of like restricting like oh yeah so this guy believes that he can just trample on our first amendment rights how do we as a country like prevent against that is there any way to prevent against that without yeah. taking freedoms away it's it's really it's really really hard not to the only way i really know of is both the american people and the supreme court and you know, con- Congress is a mess. So, <laughs> yeah, isn't that it? this re- really has to hold the president accountable to that. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no other really way to put it other than the like make con- make powers can make new laws that the president can't do executive actions that do this. Like, yeah. you could make it super specific. Yeah, you got to be explicit with it. Yeah, you have to be super explicit. Like, for example, if the president tried to pass a law that said like the Ten Commandments have to be in every government-run school. Yeah, Congress may pass a law that said the president may not make an executive order that declares this. Yada 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 mm-hmm. yada. Yeah. And I think that from like from like a, a starry eyed idealistic standpoint, like it should be the responsibility of the political parties themselves to like have an oversight committee for like okay, yeah, we have like these ten people running for like presidential nomination. Like let's make sure that like they're not like religious extremists yeah yeah that they don't want to just rip the constitution apart and like both parties have significantly failed at that at different points mm-hmm, in history mm-hmm, and continue to do so oh yes of course yep so this next one 
let's let's set the stage. Now, obviously, what happened to Kinley is both dramatic and tragic in equal measures. Oh man, but, we're about to get real dark. I yeah, like this. I like. What this. if it wasn't McKinley? What if someone had walked up to Hitler and shot him? You would probably view it differently, wouldn't you? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And Leon certainly believed America had wealth and equality problems, which it did, and the president contributed to it, which he did. And presidents do get many people killed as a result of their action or inaction. We saw that with the Spanish-American War. We saw that with the Philippines, the Philippines mm-hmm. genocide. So. Let me preface this question by saying we on this channel are not endorsing any sort of, you know, violence. violence against anyone, any government. But this is this is all like sort of uh, not a mind game, but like uh, just a, just an ethical question. As as greasy pundits would put it, this is the marketplace of ideas. Exactly. <laughs> is assassination ever an ethical good? within a democratic society. Oh, you had to put the democratic yes, qualifier because on. I knew if we just said moral good, be like, well, yeah, and a dictatorship. Yep, but what yep. if, like, now, and technically speaking, Hitler was elected, technically. Well, yeah. not really, but kind of. Banana Republic style. Banana Republic. We're talking straight up democratic society. Yeah. Is it ever an ethical good? So, like, when you were reading me, like, the ideology of this, it, he was Polish? Yeah, he was of Polish roots and yeah. started off as sort of a socialist and yeah. more towards anarchism. This, like, Polish fellow and, like, how he believed that, like, America, like, kind of had given its soul over to, like, the wrong interests and the wrong, like, uh, maybe not capitalist tendencies, but, like, greedy tendencies. Yeah, yeah. And, like, Mc- it, there's a lot of evidence to point to McKinley was very much an enabler of yes. these capitalist monopolies that yes, were, like, that were, like, cons- like, choking america to death yeah and he did help with labor a little bit but he was still like you know yeah sending in troops and, and i take that put a pin in it let's talk about the movie x-men first class for oh. a second let's <laughs> let's bring it back let's bring it back to one of my favorite x-men movies and uh it, it kind of makes me think of a scene where okay it's a prequel yeah you're you're uh, being introduced to who is going to become a villain his yeah. name is magneto yeah magneto um uh, has this enemy of his, and yeah. that enemy wants to dominate the world. Yes. And, but he also happened to kill Magneto's mother. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, Magneto is like standing there, and he has this bad guy who's played, um, who's played by Kevin Bacon, yeah. the Baconator. Yeah. And he's got Kevin Bacon like hostage, mm-hmm. and Kevin Bacon's like telling him all about his like fascist ideology, how he wants to like be superior and stuff, and uh, Magneto tells him. I agreed with everything you just said, but you also killed my mother. So he just kills him right there. Yeah, yeah. And, like, that's the first thing that I flashed to. Like, I agreed with a lot of what this McKinley assassin was saying about, like, what actually, like, systemically was wrong with America back then and to a a big extent today. Yeah. Um, But he still killed the president. But he still killed the president. In cold blood. In cold blood. Yeah. And, okay... To be honest, I haven't really worked out what I personally believe about violence in general, I don't think. Yeah, like, that's it, yeah. Like, I don't know if I would consider myself, like, a straight-up, like, pacifist mm-hmm. when it comes to, like, war, or, like, or if war is ever, like, um, justified. Yeah. Because, like, I feel like I've grown up in, like, this this era of, like, privilege where, like, me and you will probably never be drafted. No. If I had to guess. Likely not. Yeah, very likely not. And we'll never have to worry about that stuff. We're more concerned with, like, oh, like, social issues. And, like, we, we yeah. know where we stand on that. But, like, um, 
I'm trying to think of a scenario where, like, I would say, like, oh, if you believe something's justified, then I think to a certain extent you're saying that, like, I would be willing to do that in a specific situation. Oh, okay. I, I, like, I like your and, train of thought with this. And, like, say, for example, like, um, if we're talking, like, modern presidents that I disagreed with, like, yeah. I don't, I don't think that I would say, like, oh, if they got assassinated, like, oh, yeah, like, they 100% deserve that, I totally chuck off on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, could someone come along that's so hideous mm. in what they say um, that uh, them being assassinated would be viewed as, like, a complete, like, relief yeah. by America? Yeah. It's interesting, because I think a lot of times assassinations do the opposite of what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Because usually, if they're targeting someone big, and we see this even with, like, Martin Luther King Jr., the fact that they're assassinated more immortalizes them than not and galvanizes people yeah. around them towards action. Like, like we'll talk about JFK ad nauseum. Oh, yeah. But, like, he was, he had a lot of sketchy stuff about him. But, yes, like, he did. people overwhelmingly look back on him fond- fondly. And, like, we're talking, like, Republicans, Democrats, everybody. Like, yeah. modern day is like, oh, yeah, Kennedy was, like, the glamorous president. We loved him. Yeah, yeah. It's It tends to make the person viewed almost like a martyr. Mm-hmm. So, to answer the question, I think we need to look at that, that term democratic society that I use as an interesting one. Because yeah. we obviously look at that as a great thing. But people didn't always look at it that way. A lot of people look back on democratic society as like, well, that can quickly devolve into mob rule. Yeah. You know, it's taken over by a demagogue. So I could see, and this is going to sound like I'm slip sliding the question, but we're kind of both doing that. Cause this oh, is, yeah. This we're, is we're, both, we're both doing that, and I, I think I'm about... Okay, let me, let me see if I can pick up what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what, here's what just kind of popped into my head as, yeah. we were, as we're both filibustering around the question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, uh, um, so America right now, I think, is still at a little bit of a tipping point. Like, yeah. January 6th, Capital, like, capital quote-unquote protest slash riot mm-hmm. slash insurrection happens. And, like, yep. American democracy is tested that day, yes. I think. And, like, it doesn't come out with with uh, the disposi- with a rosy disposition. No. Like, I think that me and you would both agree that America, if it goes down further, like, that path of, like, people being like, eh, I mean, we don't really care what happened in the election. We just kind of want the same person. Yeah. Like, that is when... If America, like, is corrupted to that point to where, like, someone, like, gets power and, like, refuses to let go of it, mm. now we're talking, like, okay, something has to happen here to, like, correct yeah. America. That's a, that's a good point. I was going to say, if it comes to the point where the president, or who, not the president, but the power, the power structure, because just talking democratic society, yeah. becomes so corrupt that they are actively advocating for and calling for generally speaking like something absolutely horrendous and i'm not violence genocide yes something like on that level like constant like straight up concentration camps straight up death camps and it's very clear and it's very everything and we're not even talking within a dictatorship model because you could they they could still be elections still be vote out or whatever Mm -hmm. i think when something like that happens it can be justified more easily but here's the thing a lot of times, if so, like if someone goes up and kills that person, well, there's still all the people around that. Yeah, person. like it's it's a system that's the issue. Yeah, I, so I think assassination really, it's targeting one person, and sometimes it is just one person who's leading the charge and everything. Yeah, sometimes it is. If if there if there is a weak political system, then like 
dictatorships can easily happen. Yeah. And, like, I still think that, like, America is, like, several generations away from, like, something like that scale happening. Yes, I think so, too. So, I... I just don't... I don't think assassinations are really effective yeah, at yeah, what they're yeah, actually I think that's fair. trying to do. Mm-hmm. And plus, like... I get and I get the argument where it's like, well, this person like has killed a whole lot of people. Why shouldn't we hold them accountable? But like, uh, I I just don't know. Like, it's just it's it doesn't seem like the right thing to do if there are other options, and one of them is like voting them out. Yeah. Or you know, impeaching them. Putting them on putting them on criminal trial. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important to, like, we need to have a strong system that holds elected officials accountable. Yeah. And and doesn't just let them off the hook. We simply don't have that strong of a system right now. Yeah, we don't. And, like, it's it's really depressing. Yeah, and we're seeing that play out right now with, you know, the ex-president who's gotten all sorts of legal trouble. Will, Will anything actually happen? We don't know. Who knows? So that was a really interesting episode. Yeah. Not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. So, but next time, so just okay. I have I have one more. I have one more encore question. Okay. 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 I like so, this. so you said that um, uh, if they started to advocate for like horrendous stuff, like concentration camps, yeah, like internment camps, um, that you would be at least closer to like, okay, this person has to go. Yeah. Um. Would you have felt that way if FDR was president right now? Oh, and we went to war with, say, we went to war with, say, Iraq. Yeah. And he did the exact, he does the exact same thing that he did in the 30s, where, like, yeah. he interns all of the Iraqi Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's, the conditions aren't great, because internment camps are never great. Right. I think there has to be an extra level of violence and i'm not the internment camps are awful but the internment camps there wasn't that extra level of violence of extermination yeah there's 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 different there's different levels of like war crimes and like crimes against humanity that's what i think though i would definitely feel this president has to go yeah like once you once you once you cross that line if you're interning a certain people of a certain ethnic group yeah this president's gotta go that's literal like organized state sanctioned racism yeah and plus like i mean we'll talk more about this in world war ii but it was so incredibly racist because the same thing didn't happen to the german americans yep yeah yeah but it's it's uh it's a complicated issue and the reason why i brought it up now was because william mckinley He's our second to last president who was assassinated. There were others who were shot but survived. But I don't know a whole lot about Lee Harvey Oswald, but it doesn't seem like he really had a whole lot of ideological reasons. It was a mob hit. That's it, yeah. There, there's, a lot of, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of mystery surrounding him. Was he a Soviet agent? Was he a mob hit? Who knows? Did he we really might, do it? Maybe we'll just spend a whole episode on that. Who knows? Yeah, we'll probably just have to have a whole episode just talking about his assassination. Yep, yep. But, yeah, so... Next time, when we come back, and we're probably, I think we might have to do this with almost almost every president going forward, because there's so much to talk about. Pretty much. But with Teddy Roosevelt, we're going to break him down into two episodes. First one is going to discuss his personality, some of his early life. Second episode is politics. Yep. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for joining us. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. Stay ranking. Don't assassinate anybody. No, please don't.